0: Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 3rd of August 2012. Newcomers, as always, help yourself to the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And if you persevere, you'll start to understand the system that you've been born into, the real system, the way that uh, uh, the world is really run by big, powerful people, big, powerful families and organizations and foundations that got together a long time ago and uh, decided to take over the world, but not just take it over for peace or happiness, but to take it over to run the wealth of the entire planet. So all the minerals, resources they thought they would take over and distribute them uh, according to themselves. Uh, equally, uh, equally expensive, of course, to every region which they would ex- you know, distribute it to. But the thing is, too, they also wanted to, to bring in a new world, a new ordered society. Uh, they even look forward all the time through future societies to how will the world be after an industrial era, etc. And they decided at the beginning of the 20th century uh, that uh, there'd be too many people in the first world countries, and you have to find ways of bringing them down, and across the third world world as well, actually. So many things that are happening today are all to do with what was decided a long time ago by rich, powerful people who still run the same foundations, and foundations are collectively the parallel government. They've been referred to that by Margaret Thatcher. Ex-politicians, prime ministers and presidents belong to it because they all know each other, and they can work behind the scenes and get things done without being responsible to the public because they're not elected anymore, you see. And, of course, Brzezinski talked about that in his own particular book. So we live in a, a very much different society than the one we're trained to believe in by the media. And remember, too, these organizations own all of the press in the world as well, especially the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations. So help yourself to, the, to those audios, free audios. There's a thousand of them for download. And you can also print up uh, a lot of the transcripts for for uh, prints up and handing it around if you go into the sites. Plus, go into alanwattsentinel.eu sent in for transcripts in other languages. Remember, too, you can order the books and discs that I have at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And you can use a personal check or an international postal order from the U.S. to Canada. You can use PayPal, send cash. And remember, straight donations are awfully welcome. Uh, across the world, you've got Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again, because I don't bring on advertisers as guests. What I do is give you the basic straight news. I don't hype it up. I don't become emotional over it because there's no point unless I want to do a show. And uh, what I'm trying to give you, basically, is just the straight facts of the world you're born into. And you've got to understand, uh, if you understand even revolutions like the U.S. revolution and other ones that followed it too, Yet pamphleteers, they call them pamphleteers that printed up this one-pagers and put them on trees and things in the old days. And this goes on for a long, long time before people get the message and start to protest and demand things. And basically, that's what people on the radio are doing right now. It can take an awful long time, and they won't probably see anything happening in their own lifetimes. It takes such a long, long time to work up. The big boys, of course, know that, and they're countering everything as best they can with the high technologies that they have. And... Um, they, they even saw this coming long before they even gave us the Internet. So you're in a war, and it truly is an information war. Uh, the problem is there's so much data out there that they said, the big boys who gave us Internet, they said they would overload us all with irrelevance and data, and you can get lost forever in the Internet. There's all kinds of stuff out there that keep going forever and ever and ever, and most of it trivia or irrelevant, and most of it you'll never remember anyway. So what you got to do is really sit down and get to the main facts of the at least what we're given in history as the big foundations run by the richest people on the planet and start from there. They're still on the go today. I'll be talking about that tonight later on. Back with more after this break. i back, cutting through the matrix, and it's true, the world we're living in is vastly different from the one that the media would generally have you believe in. Mind you, they'll give you some truth once in a while, generally 40, 50 years after the Official Secrets Act has, has, has come up, because everything that happens in the world that's planned to happen, or is happening now, the truth is never released until way, until way down the road until the Official Secret Act is, is cleared and over, then they tell you what they've been doing even to their own people at times, like the people in Britain who found out that they were being sprayed from the air with cadmium and various other things back in the 1970s. It's okay to tell them now because most of them are dead. And that's how the world really is run, by secrecy at the top, because we're presented with a type of government that we're taught to believe in, but it really doesn't exist as such. That's a show for the public. As I say, the big foundations that set up this very system with this political system as a front have been on the go for an awful long time, and they're still in power and charge today. Now, he's an example, for instance, of something that doesn't matter anymore, you see. And it says, uh, Bibi helped in uh, plot for U.S. nuclear equipment. As his declassified FBI documents implicate Prime Minister Netanyahu in a 1970s plot to use U.S. technology for Israel's nuclear program. Now, back in the 70s, Netanyahu had a different name, of course, and he lived in the U.S. I remember when he went over to become the Prime Minister from the U.S., they changed his name. That was on the papers at the time. And journalists that tried to find out even where his social insurance number was. Everything was classified about him. Everything was classified. And that generally means they work for the CIA. Anyway, it says, Declassified FBI documents from a 85 to 2002 investigation implicate Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu an initiative to illegally purchase United States nuclear technology for uh, Israel, uh, their nuclear program. So he was allegedly helped by Arnon Milken, a Hollywood producer with ties to Israel Prime Ministers and U.S. Presidents. Milken, and R-S-Q-U-O-S, it says, involves involvement in Israeli intelligence and arms dealing has been the subject of reports for some time and was described in an unofficial biography published last year. The documents rely on testimony from Richard Kelly Smith, a U.S. citizen charged with illegally selling krypton triggers to Israel and Taiwan. Smith was the president of a company called Malco, M-I-L-C-O, that worked for the NASA, and he allegedly sold it to Israeli Defense Ministry through the Haley Company, which was owned by Milken. The sale of nuclear technology to Israel is illegal under U.S. law because Israel is not a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Now that in itself is a little interesting part two. Because Israel is wanting the U.S. to go and take out Iran because they're, they're building up their nuclear uh, power supply. Uh, but Israel itself has got all this stuff, and they haven't signed any international treaty not to do it because they've already got all this stuff. But it still won't sign or be inspected. Anyway, Smith, Smith fled the US in the nineteen eighties to avoid charges, he was arrested and extradited in two thousand one, and two thousand two was sentenced to forty months in jail and a twenty thousand dollar fine. Netanyahu allegedly met with Smith during his time at the head of Milko. The two met in Tel Aviv restaurants, Netanyahu says home, and elsewhere at the time Netanyahu was in touch with heads of Haley, as well as with senior political and military figures in Israel, amongst them Ariel Sharon, another future prime minister. So, But that doesn't matter anymore today. But that's when they tell you some of the facts which they already had all that time. That's how the, the, the world really works, you know. That's why I'm always kind of suspicious when they bring someone out that's just out of the CIA or the FBI or whatever, because they're not allowed to tell you the truth until all these years are are, are over and done by under the Official Secrets Act. Every country has got it. Every country. Anyway, that's that one there. And then this one just popped in right after it too. And it says the CIA station chief opened the locked uh, box containing the sensitive equipment he used from his home in Tel Aviv, Israel. So that's the CIA station chief over in Israel. To communicate with the CIA headquarters in Virginia, once he find that someone had tampered with it, he sent word to his superiors about the break-in. And it says, incident described by three former senior U.S. intelligence officials might have been dismissed as just another cloak and dagger incident in the world of international espionage, except that the same thing happened to the previous station chief in Israel. It was not so subtle a reminder that even in a country friendly to the United States, the CIA was itself being watched. In a separate episode, according to another two former U.S. officials, a CIA officer in Israel came home to find the food in the refrigerator had been rearranged and all the cases the U.S. government believes Israel's security services were responsible. Such meddling underscores was rarely well known but rarely discussed outside intelligence circles. Despite inarguable ties between the U.S. and the closest die in the Middle East, and despite statements from U.S. politicians trumpeting the friendship, U.S. national security officials consider Israel to be, at times, a frustrating ally in a genuine counterintelligence threat. In addition to what the former U.S. officials described as intrusions in homes in the past decade, Israel has been implicated in U.S. criminal espionage cases and disciplinary proceedings against CIA officers and blamed in the presumed death of an important spy in Syria for the CIA during the administration of President George W. Bush. The CIA considers Israel its number one counterintelligence threat in the agency's Near East Division. Uh, the group that oversees spying across the Middle East, according to the current and former officials. And counterintelligence is the art of protecting national secrets from spies. This means the CIA believes that U.S. national secrets are far safer uh, from other Middle Eastern governments than from Israel. Israel employs highly sophisticated professional spy services that rival American agencies. Actually, a lot of them are in American agencies. And it says uh, in technical capability and recruiting human sources. This is unlike Iran or Syria, for example. Israel is a steadfast U.S. ally and they enjoy access to the highest levels of U.S. government and military and intelligence circles, so they share intelligence. The officials spoke on condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to talk publicly about the sensitive intelligence and diplomatic issues between the two countries. The counterintelligence worries continue, even as the U.S. relationship with Israel features uh, close cooperation on intelligence programs that reportedly include the Stuxnet computer virus that attacked computers in Iran's main nuclear enrichment facilities. While the alliance is central to the U.S. approach in the Middle East, there's room for intense disagreement, especially in the diplomatic turmoil over Iran's nuclear ambitions. It's a complicated relationship, said Joseph Whippy, a former CIA clandestine officer and head of the agency's Office of Congressional Affairs. They have their interests. We have our interests. For the U.S., it's a balancing act. Well, that's the way the world really goes, you know. And everybody's infiltrated by everybody else's spies. So I don't think you can have real security in this day and age, to be honest with you at all. Now, this is quite interesting, too, because... We're in an inter-, we're a global society, for those who haven't figured it out yet. And, and you can't keep, you can't figure out, most people can't figure out whether governments, they, they, they think are still national, and they, they think, they think they vote them in. They can't understand why they keep going global with everything, did with Europe, that's now, that's taken all a whole bunch of ex-, ex-sovereign countries and squeezed them into this big uh, Soviet uh, system. They called it the, the European Union. Uh, And of course, they they really don't have any sovereignty at all. They can't do anything without without asking permission from the European Parliament, in fact. But that's the world you're in, and it was all described a long, long time ago. First by Karl Marx. And then it was described by others down the road. Uh, As I said, the boys who formed the foundations, who worked with communists, fascists, everybody's, according to Carol Quigley, the historian of the Council on Foreign Relations, for instance. And the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the British uh, main agency that runs them all. Uh, they talked about this global society and how they 'd bring it in and big boys who still belong to it, like Jack Satali, talked about the global system and how the new um, jet setting class of uh, managerial class in fact world managers, would be called the new nomads who jet set across the world and they 'd be kind of fluent in different languages. Because they'd be taught and brought up in those countries during their education uh, for the global society. Well, it's all here. Because here's the first international school. And it's called the Suri Cruise. Enrolls at $40,000. That's how for your child, the much it's going to cost for your child to go through a year. Uh, well, it's a world school with campuses on five continents. And it says the brand new 40,000 a year avenues is to open 20 campuses on five continents enabling students to switch between schools without disrupting their education. Aimed at children of the jet-setting elite, the World School enables pupils to follow their parents around the globe without being tied to school vacation schedules. The six-year-old will be based on the school's flagship New York campus, just a few blocks from the luxury apartment she shares with Katie, etc., The Imposing school building will have a rooftop playground, along with being gym that includes basketball and volleyball courts and all that kind of stuff. So it goes through this this organization, and it says 30 years from now, there will likely be a number of such organizations. Avenues, as the name of the group, plans to be the best of this new breed of educational institution, hence its subtitle, The World School. And with campuses planned for China, India, Africa, Europe, the Americas, and Australia, Surrey will certainly be able to study around the globe along with high academic standards the school, claims it will also teach people's life skills and advantage to children uh, as sheltered as uh, Suri. So, whereas everything's going international for those who can afford it, of course. The rest of you will be stuck in your own little areas or regions with your ID card that won't allow you to travel outside that area. And that's what's coming down, folks. Now, there was... Um, a tornado happened about a week ago or so in Elmira in New York State, and I don't know if it's the first time this has been used. All these early warning systems are using with your cell phones and so on. But anyway, they're certainly hyping it up. That they it, it, it helped the people. They say this is if you had the right type of smartphone that was enabled to receive warnings through the wireless emergency alert system, then you probably got word that Thursday's tornado was on its way 30 minutes before it hit. That in itself was odd because generally you can't tell where it's going to hit. And I kind of wonder about that. So, National Weather Service and several major cell phone carriers uh, got together and launched an early disaster warning system. Back with more after this. <music> Hi, folks. We're back. Cutting through the matrix, talking about the new basically disaster warning systems that blasted out through your cell phones now and how they're, they're making sure that we all know about it because eventually people will... It's a good selling point for the phones, of course, and they actually mention the types of phones that have this uh, this particular application in it already. And the ones that are going up towards it as well. This it is a fairly new service, so most, but not all, of our devices will get the alerts, says John O'Malley, Verizon spokesman. There's something in the phone software that receives a message, and the FCC is requiring all manufacturers to build it into their cell phones. As customers upgrade their phones, they'll be able to receive the alerts, he said. So this is going to be the way of the future too, when everybody's, we're all supposed to be terrified all the time, we're scared of rain coming or snow hitting or whatever, Everyone's terrifying if you listen to the Weather Channel. And, uh, so, so they're going to save our lives and by selling you lots of phones and interfering with your life to scare you. And this might land and this might touch down and it might not and all that kind of stuff. So. There you go. But it is odd that they, they said it would hit Elmira, and it actually did. Now generally, you can't tell where it's going to hit, and th- especially 30 minutes before. But they were dead on. I wonder if they're guiding them, eh? Oh, that's conspiracy, isn't it? They can't do that yet, can they? <laughs> anyway, we're living in an age... Of of complete uh, amazement, truly. Amazement in how we're so easily controlled and how our conditions so easily. Massive sciences are at play and have been for a long time to condition us all to be basically dumbed down, uh, including the poisons they give you in your food and the fluoride in the water and various other things, grabbing the smart young children and doping them at uh, school, of course are a big way to do it too and they said they would do this a long time ago they would catch the smart ones it could be leaders at school and they'd, they'd drug them that was said almost 90 years ago and it's happened and we take it all for granted now like it's normal and uh, and we do adapt darwin said that the human uh, the humanists are the, are the best and most adaptable creatures on the planet and that can act against us too when you have people leading the show and playing with their heads and their minds all the time and, and, uh, and they know we'll adapt to whatever they want us to adapt to that fits their agenda. Now we're also living in an age where, where we see massive plunder everywhere through the banking systems and uh, guys at the top getting slaps on the wrist for crashing countries' economies and all of that kind of stuff. I won't change it, mind you, because all it does is give them more power as they pretend to consolidate into high watchdogs to watch each other, and that'll keep us all quiet for another 50 years as they work up the next scams and plunder us all again. Because they always plunder you at least twice a century, openly, that is. The rest of the time, they're always plundering you quietly. But here's British Columbia and, and Canada, and most think, People think that Canada is very quiet and awfully nice and so on. They've no Canadians don't complain much about anything at all, you know, uh, except the CBC television, which keeps using the taxpayers' money to put out awful movies and things that nobody watches. But it says the premier, that's like the big governor of the state, you see, the province, their office defends luxury credit card items as the cost of doing business. This is what they all say now the premier's office has defended expensive restaurant bills and other costs on the premier office's credit card as part of the cost of doing business the office's credit card expenses have more than doubled since the premier christy clark assumed leadership of the party from gordon campbell jumping from since 2519039 dollars uh, in 2010 11 to 475015 in 2011 to 2012 and it says, dinners at five-star restaurants, visits to premium British Columbia wineries, jewellery and thousands of dollars in coffee paid for by BC taxpayers as a cost of doing business at the Premier's office during a busy year, uh, Premier Christy Clark's spokesman said Thursday. Now, spokesman means that's for public relations, which is a propaganda person. They're trained in marketing and how to say things in, in an obscure fashion to the public. Public accounts records show uh, that the credit card expenses of the Premier's office have more than doubled, uh, as I say, since uh, Premier Clark assumed leadership of the party from Gordon Campbell. $1,000 meals at Vancouver restaurants such as Bishop and the Blue Water Cafe uh, and Raw Bar, unspecified charges at BC wineries, uh, Quail's Gate and burrowing owl in the how, the hundreds of thousands uh, uh, hundreds of dollars and a twenty thousand dollars twenty five thousand dollar tell bill are amongst the one thousand three hundred and ten charges listed. Well you've all had thousand thousand dollar meals, haven't you? I mean haven't you had, had that? No. The spending spree the time of government austerity measures generated some stiff criticism this week from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation who agreed it showed a lack of leadership and a level of hypocrisy. But the Premier's office hit back thrust, explaining that the charges, which also included over $100,000 in airfare, can largely be attributed to three high-profile events the Premier was part of, all of which require significant hosting duties and gift purchases. There were two trips to Asia, one of which was the biggest, I think, in the history of BC, explained Mike Morton, a spokesperson for the Premier. But the really big expense was the Premier hosted the, the Council of the Federation, it's called, Council of the Federation, and there were significant expenses to that. Morton says addition of 30 staff members, the result of Premier's office taking over intergovernmental relations last year, has added to cost. In other words, here they go justifying it all. Yeah, how can you justify this can kind of stuff? This is only one credit card, right? That's not the, all the money they get from other things as well, and how they use it too. But they live like this in Canada, the States, uh, Britain, and everywhere else too. It's less like the new courtiers you'd have around a king at one time how they all lived higher than most of the nobility and that's what we have today, It's just taken for granted and we accept it all because we've been so jaded ourselves with moral relativity most folk would do, do the same themselves if they got up there, back with more after this break You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watson. This world too, of course, and this in this bigger system and the agenda right now, demands that we all be terrified all the time. And that's why you're getting trained uh, through airports and even trains and buses at times as well for searches and everything else and to be scanned. It's all part of obedience and making you feel very vulnerable, of course, and getting to accept things that you shouldn't accept. And remember Huxley talked about that too, that we'd be taught to accept things that we, that we normally should not accept, like having someone pull down your pants for instance and grab you that kind of stuff but it's all training you see it's, it's all behaviourism and it's been worked out before through tests long before they gave it to the public how it alters society makes them compliant timid and, uh, and so on Anyway, it says on August 1st, 2012, a federal appeals court ordered the Transportation Security Administration to clarify why they have yet to comply with a now year-old court decision mandating public hearings on the use of the so-called naked body scanners in airports across the nation. These hearings were supposed to address the rules and regulations pertaining to the use of these scanners, which have been linked to significant health risks. Pays quite considerable costs on the taxpayer, and most importantly, don't even work as it's supposed to. And remember, too, that even last year, there was a, 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 in the, from the union uh, for the TSA, they've got their own union, um, it, it said in the paper that uh, a lot of them have come down with cancers, and they were causing a stink because there's a lot of scatter comes off these X-ray devices, and they're working around them all the time, so their, their cancer rate went up amongst employees. Never mind the, the passengers. Anyway... Indeed, earlier this year, a blogger exposed how easy it is to bypass these scanners, while in 2010, an Israeli security expert said, I don't know why everybody's running around to buy these expensive and useless machines. I can overcome the body scanners with enough explosives to bring down a Boeing 747. And the links are all there to, to justify what I'm just talking about from the characters that said it. In response to the third request from the Electronics Privacy Information Center, the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit finally stepped up. In a short order, the court asked why the TSC has yet to follow through with being ordered to act promptly and hold public hearings with the public adoption of rules and regulations of the use of scanners. The original decision came on July 15, 2011, in response to a lawsuit filed by the EPIC. The court set aside the constitutional challenge brought forth by EPIC in order to allow the government to conduct the aforementioned public hearings. Well, the court, uh, appeals court ruled 3-0 in favor of keeping the scanners in place, stating screening passengers at an airport is an administrative search, that's what they call it, administrative search because the primary goal is not to determine whether any passengers committed a crime, but rather to protect the public from a terrorist attack. However, they also ruled that the TSA breached federal law when they formally made the body scanners the primary screening method for passengers. They ruled in 2009 that the TSA violated the Administrative Procedures Act since it didn't hold the 90-day public comment period after which they ordered them to carry it out. Now, this article here will get you lost in legalisms because all they're discussing is legalisms and constitution and, and reinterpretation and, and all the rest of it. But the fact is, you understand, until all this happened, only people who were trained in radiology for hospitals could use this kind of equipment. That's what they should be talking about. You see. This is, it's now a medical procedure going th- through, through airport. Because that's who should be handling this stuff. And these machines are not, um, upgraded and, and properly maintained and they go off their settings awfully quickly regarding the dosage they give you. Anyway, I'll put this up tonight at cuttingthroughthemudix.com with other links too. Now, we know that Australia, and we know that the U.S. agenda is also to to go into the Far East now, and they're they're doing it, they're they're putting bases in Australia. They're also talking about the same in New Zealand and other countries, uh, as they start to, uh, just in case China gets too big for its boats, basically. Even though they're all in the same big club, but they're all out to sort of vie for more power uh, in their own little club, mind you. But it says Australia refuses to host the U.S. nuclear carrier strike group, and it says, it says, Australia has rejected a proposal to host the new, the US nuclear aircraft carrier strike group on its west coast. A Pentagon-commissioned report on repositioning U.S. forces in the region had suggested relocating a carrier from the U.S. east coast to an Australian naval base south of Perth as part of a shift in the U.S. military's overseas deployment to the Asia-Pacific region. The report has been drafted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington-based think tank. So we're all run by private think tanks that work for the foundations. that You don't vote. You have nothing to do with voting in them, in, mind you. That's how the world really runs. And they advise governments what to do, which means telling them what to do. Australian Defence Minister Stephen Smith said Thursday that Australia's Indian Ocean base, HMAS Stirling, would never become a U.S. military base, although negotiations were underway to increase the U.S.'s uh, Navy's access to the outpost we made it crystal clear from the first moment we don't have U.S. military bases in Australia. We don't see the need for that, the Associated Press, Corey Smith, is saying on Australian Broadcasting Corps television. It's a suggestion by an independent think tank. It's not one we are proposed to take up, he said. Hugh White, the head of Australian National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, said Chinese objections were the main reason why Australia was unlikely ever to ever allow U.S. bases on its territory. Plus two, I mean, don't forget Australia and New Zealand and those countries uh, were set up a long time ago under the Royal Institute of International Affairs to eventually blend in with the regional block, economic block, just like the European Union with China. So they have to watch what they're doing. And that's why they put the Fabian Socialist in as Prime Minister right now in uh, Australia to make sure all that goes smoothly ahead. And this is an Incredible article because it's the first time I've seen in the mainstream talk about things I've talked about on this broadcast for years. Now, I've talked about how Carl Quigley and others who worked for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is this one branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, which is a group made up of top bankers of the world, money lenders. And uh, they set it up when they became uh, the Cecil Rhodes Foundation. It blended with the Milner Group, which is a banking group for world bankers. And they called it the Royal Institute of International Affairs. These are the guys who talked about taking over the world, all of its resources, and using science and scientists and academia to rule all the rest of us with governmental agencies, etc., etc., etc. And this article, and I mentioned too that Quigley and his Anglo-American establishment book, very, very good, tells you the history of the wars and everything else and how they were behind it, how they fomented almost every war And all the the covert wars that are going around the world as they bring this global system into place. We're living we're living through it. We don't uh, these guys remember put their own people into politics. Every prime minister and president, according to Quigley, has been uh, a member of it for a hundred years. We've watched the colour revolutions they set up, we've watched your own governments funding them, we've watched the foundations owned by the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Ford, Carnegie, Rockefeller foundations, fund oppositions as they destabilise the countries to take over those countries. So here's a mainstream reporter actually talking about it. The Syrian opposition, who, who is the Syrian opposition we keep hearing about? Who's doing the talking? And it says, the director of the Syrian uh, Observatory for Human Rights, um, Abdul Rahman, speaks on the phone in his home in Coventry, December 2011. It says, a nightmare is unfolding across Syria in the homes of Al-Hefa and the streets of Huala. It says, and we all know how the story ends with thousands of soldiers and civilians killed, towns and families destroyed, and President Assad will be beaten to death in a ditch. Because that's what happens in Libya. And it's the same forces, mercenaries and everything paid by the West. We know this. So this is the story of the Syrian war. But there's another story to be told. A tale less bloody, but nevertheless important. This is a story about the storytellers, the spokespeople, the experts on Syria, the democracy activists, they call themselves, the statement makers, the people who urge and warn and call for action. It's a tale about some of the most quoted members of the Syrian opposition and the connection to the Anglo-American opposition creation business. The mainstream news media have in the main been remarkably uh, uh, passive when it comes to Syrian sources, billing them simply as official spokesmen or pro-democracy campaigners without, for the most part, scrutinizing their statements, their backgrounds, or their political connections. The reason is being, you see, the guys in the foundations that own and fund and recruits and train all these people belong to the Rothschild of international affairs, uh, and they own all the media as well. That's why they don't question them. It is important to stress to investigate the background of a Syrian spokesperson and it's no, it's no doubt uh, the sincerity of his or her opposition to Assad, but it's a passionate hatred of the Assad regime, and it's no guarantee of independence. Indeed, a number of key figures in the Syrian opposition movement are long-term exiles who were receiving U.S. government funding to undermine the, the Assad government long before the Arab Spring broke out. And I beg to the work for the CIA too, mind you. Though it's not yet stated U.S. government policy to oust Assad by force, these spokespeople are vocal advocates of foreign military intervention in Syria and thus natural allies of well-known U.S. neoconservatives who supported Bush's invasion of Iraq and are now pressing the Obama administration to intervene. As we'll see, several of these spokespeople have found support and in some cases developed long and lucrative relationships with advocates of military intervention on both sides of the Atlantic. It says, the sand is running out of the hourglass, Hillary Clinton said on, on Sunday. As so as fighting in Syria intensifies and Russian warships set sail for Tartus, it's high time to take a closer look at those who are speaking out on behalf of the Syrian people. Now the first one that comes up is the Syrian National Council. The most quoted of the opposition spokespeople are the official representatives of the Syrian National Council, the SNC is not the only Syrian opposition group, but is generally recognized as the main opposition coalition by the BBC. Uh, The Washington Times describes it as an umbrella group of rival factions based outside Syria. Certainly the SNC is the opposition group that's had the closest dealings with Western powers and has called for foreign intervention from the early stages of the uprising. In February of this year, the opening of the Friends of Syria Summit in Tunisia, William Haig declared, I will meet leaders of the Syrian National Council in a few minutes' time. We, in common with other nations, will now treat them and recognize them as a legitimate representative of the Syrian people. The most senior of the SNC's official spokespeople is the Paris-based Syrian academic Basma Kodmani. This is a woman. Now, who is Basma Kodmani? Now, listen listen to this, folks. It says... um, The show, a a photograph, first of all, Basma Kormadi, at the Bilderberg meeting. She's been at the two, the last one, the one before it. And uh, it says here, she also went to the one in Virginia, the the absolute last one. Kormani is a member of the Executive Bureau and Head of Foreign Affairs, Syrian National Council. Kormani is close to the center of the SNC power structure and one of the council's most vocal spokespeople. No dialogue, dialogue with the ruling regime is possible, that's what she says. We can only discuss how to move on a difficult political system, she declared this week. And here she is quoted by the newswire AFP. The next step, she says, needs to be a resolution under Chapter 7, which allows for the use of all legitimate means, coercive means, embargo on arms, as well as the use of force to oblige the regime to comply. Now, this woman's gone from country to country along with the U.S., from, from you know, through Iraq and all the rest of them, now, now they're in Syria with these same trained uh, so-called uh, uh, opposition uh, parties. This statement translates into the headline: Syrians call for armed peacemakers. When large-scale international military action is being called for, it seems only reasonable to ask who exactly is calling for it. So it says this year was Kadmani's second Bilderberger meeting. At the 2008 conference, Kadmani was listed as French. By 2012, her Frenchness had fallen away, and she was listed simply as international. Her homeland had become the world of international relations. Back a few years in 2005, Kermani was working for, guess what, the Ford Foundation. The big Ford Foundation. Go back to the Rees Commission, remember what the Ford Foundation say? In the 50s, they were trying to bring commun- link communism, bring it together with capitalism for the world society of the future. The Ford Foundation that works with the CFR And so here she was working and trained at the Ford Foundation Where she was director of their Governance and International Cooperation Program The Ford Foundation is a vast organization headquartered in New York And Kermani was already fairly senior But she was about to jump up a league Around this time, February 2005 U.S.-Syrian relations collapsed President Bush recalled his ambassador from Damascus a lot of opposition projects date from this period. The U.S. money for Syrian opposition figures began flowing under President Bush after he effectively froze political ties with Damascus. In September 2005, Kudmanu was made the executive director of the Arab Reform Initiative, a research program initiated by the powerful U.S. lobby group Guess Who? Council on Foreign Relations. I've been telling this for years. They run the world. They're behind all the wars. The Council of Foreign Relations is an elite US foreign policy think tank. And the Arab Reform Initiative is described on its website as a CFR project. Oh, my, 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 eh? A CFR project. More specifically, the ARI was initiated by a group within the Council on Foreign Relations called the U.S. Middle East Project, a body of senior diplomats, intelligence officers and financiers, the stated aim of which is to undertake regional policy analysis in order to prevent conflict and promote stability. The U.S. Middle East Project pursues these goals under the guidance of an international board chaired by General Guess Who, Brent Scowcroft. Peter Sutherland, um, I'll show you him, too, at the Bilderberg, Bilderberg uh, Conference. Brent Scowcroft, Chairman Emeritus, is a former National Security Advisor to the U.S. President. He's, he's up, up there at the, the CFR now, dealing with all these rebellions abroad. He took over the role from Henry Kissinger. Also, Henry Kissinger was running it before him. Sitting along, alongside Scowcroft at the International Board is his fellow geostrategist strategist Brzezinski who succeeded him as a national security advisor. Now, they all belong to the Council on Foreign Relations, and these guys also belong to the Trilateral Commission. Says, and Peter Sutherland, the chairman of Goldman Sachs International. Oh, my, mama! My, my. Well, you can't have all these uh, shitty dealings with, with spooky forces, you know, without having a big bank behind them. You know, the bank. So, as early as 2005, we got a senior wing of the Western Intelligence Banking establishment selecting Kordbani to run a Middle East research project. In September of that year, Kodmany was made full-time director of the program. Early in 2005, the Council on Foreign Relations assigned financial oversight of the project to the Centre for European Reform Income, the British. That's a part of the Royal Institute for international affairs, by the way. Um, it says the CER was overseen by Lord Kerr, the deputy chairman of Royal Dutch Shell. Kerr is a member of head of the diplomatic service and senior advisor to Chatham House, that's the headquarters of the, of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is the boss of the Council on Foreign Relations. In charge of the CER on a day-to-day basis is Charles Grant, former defence editor of The Economist, and these days a member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. She does have a branch for the whole European Council, the CFR a pan-European, like to call themselves think tanks, packed with diplomats, industrialists, professors, and prime ministers. On its list of members, you'll find the name Basma Kodmani. She's also on that as well. Executive Director, Arab Reform Initiative. That means overthrowing governments. Another name on the list was, oh my my, George Soros, uh, the financier whose non-profit, Open Society Foundation, is a primary funding source of the European Council on Foreign Relations. So you're not run by any elected representatives at all, you're run by these guys. Back with more on this after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, we're back, cutting through the matrix, talking about the ones behind the attacks on Syria, basically, the ones who've been behind the attacks in all the countries that have overthrown already. And to show you the private organizations, you know, charitable philanthropic foundations uh, really run the world's. And here's one of their members here, this particular woman uh, called Manny, as she's called, who obviously is a high, high agent working with the Council on Foreign Relations, trained by them, no doubt, uh, working for the Ford Foundation and working with various uh, CIA and and different officials and all the rest of it. But she says... um, George Soros, the financier whose non-profit Open Society Foundation is a primary funding source of the European Council on Foreign Relations. That's why it's this non-democratic, the European Union, because the guys at the top that run it don't respond to the public. And in fact, most of them are even won't give their names out who actually runs the union. The politicians down below can't make laws or even change laws. They can all they can do is yell at each other and get, you know, PR points on, on YouTube. Anyway, it says here, the point is, Kodmani is not some random pro-democracy activist who happens to have found herself in front of a microphone. She has impeccable international diplomacy credentials. She holds the position of the research director at the Académie uh, Diplomatique Internationale, an independent and neutral institution uh, dedicated to promoting modern diplomacy. And, and earlier on, I mentioned she's going to use force and everything else. The Académie is headed by Jean-Georges Cossera, a former head of the DGSE, the French Foreign Intelligence service. A picture emerging of Kudmani as a trusted lieutenant of the Anglo-American democracy promotion industry. And remember, democracy is not democracy, this is to use for us. Her province of origin, according to the SNNC website, is Damascus, but she has close and long-standing professional relationships with precisely those powers she's calling upon to intervene in Syria. And many of her spokesman colleagues are equally well-connected. Another one is Radwan Ziadeh, Z-I-A-D-E-H. So it says... He is Director of Foreign Relations at the Syrian National Council. Zieda is an impressive CV. is a senior fellow at the federally funded Washington think tank, the U.S. Institute of Peace. The USIP Board of Directors is packed with alumni of the Defense Department and the National Security Council. As president is Richard Solomon, former advisor to Kissinger at the NSC National Security Council. In February this year, Zaida joined an elite bunch of Washington Hawks to sign a letter calling upon Obama to intervene in Syria. His fellow signatories include James Woolseleaf, former CIA chief, Karl Rove, Bush, Bush's junior his handler, Clifford May, committee on the present danger, and Elizabeth Cheney, former head of the Pentagon's Iran, Iran-Syria operations group. Zieda is a relentless organiser, a blue-chip Washington insider with links to some of the most powerful establishment think tanks. Zieda connections extend all the way to London. In 2009, he became a visiting fellow at Chatham House, that's the Royal Institute of International Affairs again, their headquarters. And in June of last year, he featured in the panel... Uh, at least of one of their events, called Envisaging Invisig- Invisig- in- Invisig- Syria's Political Future, sharing a platform with fellow SNC spokesman Asuma Monajed and, it uh, says, an SNC member, uh, Najib Gadbian. Uh, Gadbian was identified the Wall Street Journal as an early intermediary between the U.S. government and the Syrian opposition in exile, an initial contact between the White House and the NSF National Salvation, uh, Salvation Front, as called, was forged by Najib Gadbian, a University of Arkansas political scientist, back in 2005. Now this is just the start of this article. I'll do the rest of it when I come back on Monday. All going well, that is. Now from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night and may your God, or your gods, go with you.